Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again and thank you for joining us on the podcast we like to call Space Nuts. Although sometimes you might find pieces of plastic and other things in the packet that aren't supposed to be there. But that's not our fault. That's a production issue. We'll leave that up to somebody else to sort out. And joining me as always is Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. I, um, I, we have to wade our way through the pieces of plastic, yes. uh, the, the oral plastic. Yes, I'm, uh, I'm of course referring to something that's been in the Australian news recently about um, a much-anticipated product that was recalled within two or three days of being released because of plastic. <laughs> quite so. <laughs> Which uh, is unfortunate because I wanted some. I wanted some bad. It was a chocolate, by the way. Uh, now, today we're going to be talking about uh, a Chinese space station that won't be a space station for much longer. No, quite so. <laughs> it will be litter. Uh, and pieces of plastic, probably. Uh, the Curiosity rover has achieved another remarkable milestone, that of uh, its 2,000th sol on the planet Mars. And uh, the Yerkes Observatory uh, will cease operations uh, soon after over 100 years of operation, which is just incredible. Uh, Yerkes is also something my grandson says very often. Uh, but first, <laughs> firstly, Fred, uh, this Chinese space station, the... Tiangong One Space Station is about to um, plummet spectacularly, yeah, right. I imagine. It, it, could, it could be spectacular, that's true, because um, uh, as it re-enters the Earth's atmosphere, it is sure to burn up. And if it, if it enters in a place where people can see it, and to be honest, that's unlikely because most of the Earth's surface is covered in ocean. Uh, it, but if it does, um, then uh, it would be a spectacular sight. So the backstory to this, Andrew, is that this spacecraft uh, was launched uh, in 2011. Uh, the Chinese have still, uh, sorry, have since then launched another, uh, another manned space, sp space station, which not surprisingly is called Tiangong. Mm. Um, Tiangong is heavenly palace, by the way. It's um, a nice, um, you know, a, a really nice epithet for uh, this, uh, what you might call the flagship mission of the CMSA, which is the Chinese Manned Space Agency. So it's their little version of the International Space Station. Uh, it weighs, so Tiangong 1 weighs about eight and a half tonnes. Uh, <clears throat> that is nothing compared with the International Space Station itself, which is at something like 420 tonnes. <clears throat> but um, So that'll be spectacular when it comes down, but we'll talk about that some other time. Yeah, uh, well, the problem at the moment... <laughs> yeah, not soon, that's right. The problem at the moment is that Tiangong-1 seems to have uh, lost contact with the Earth, and we only have that as a, an, a, an assumption, because I believe that the Chinese Space Agency has not confirmed that they have lost uh, 
contact or control with the spacecraft. But we can see from you know radar tracking that it is on uh, an, basically an uncontrolled trajectory. So what uh, happens? Let me, with... let me let me decaying yeah. orbit. Oh, look at that. You've got the words. Um, you and I, masters of decay. Uh, <laughs> which is what happens to nuts if you leave them in the bag long enough. Um, yes, de a, de a decaying orbit. So uh, since its launch, um, and this happens with all large objects in low Earth orbit, and by low Earth orbit here I mean about 350 kilometres above the Earth's surface. Um, since its launch, it's had um, basically... Uh, it, it, the process is called station keeping. You you push up the uh, orbit slightly because it's always decaying slowly due to the residual drag of the atmosphere at that height. Even though that's way above any kind of breathable atmosphere, there is still enough, um, uh, you know, there are still enough molecules of, of uh, oxygen, nitrogen, and all the rest in the atmosphere uh, to act as a drag on the spacecraft, particularly on the solar panels, which are the bits that stick out the side, like large flappy ears. Um, the solar panels tend to slow it down, and that slowdown means that the altitude of the spacecraft gradually falls. And so what um, operators do is they fire up their booster rockets periodically. And in the case of, of Tiangong-1, that was roughly every six months, four to six months, something like that, just to lift its uh, its orbit slightly. Uh, uh, the, these, these firings of the rocket motors last a matter of minutes. They're not long affairs, mm. but they push the, the speed of the spacecraft up, which in turn uh, increases its altitude. Uh, and so um, that's the process that, uh, you know, that's happened over the, over the years. And if you look at a plot of the height of Tiangong-1, actually of, of almost any large space, spacecraft um, it's kind of a sawtooth figure uh, because the you know there's a vertical bit when when you when you're plotting the height against time where it gets a boost and then it gradually uh, slows down uh, in, in uh, so it reduces in altitude and then you get another boost so you get this sawtooth profile but um, we know from radar measurements that the last of those uh, what are called altitude adjustments, in other words, a boost to get it to a slightly higher altitude and actually reached almost 400 kilometres at that time. That last one took place on the 16th of December 2015. Oops. So it has... Uh, since then, not had any altitude boosts. And of course, what that means is that it just starts falling back to Earth very, very slowly at first because there's not much drag at 350 or so kilometres. But it's now at a height uh, which is much lower. Its current height is round about 220 kilometres. And that puts it well down into the upper layers of the atmosphere. Mm. So the slowdown is increasing. Uh, and that is why it's in the news. Um, the, by the time some of our listeners actually hear this podcast, it might be all over yeah. because the expectation is that Tiangong-1 will hit the ground uh, sometime basically over the Easter weekend. It will be, um, you know, probably between uh, the 30th of March and the 3rd of April. And the best guess is the, the 1st of April, which is quite kind of appropriate, well, I suppose. You know, the... people are going to think it's a joke in that case. <laughs> yeah. Um, as I said, it's very unlikely that anybody will even see it, let alone get 
knocked on the head by bits of re-entering space debris uh, because most of the trajectory, uh, which occupies a region between latitude 43 degrees north and latitude 43 degrees south on the Earth's surface, most of that or much of it is over is over ocean. Um, so uh, the, the odds are that it will come down somewhere in the ocean. But um, because these things move so quickly, you know, the, 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 the best sort of prediction that you might get, and this is later in the, in the decay process when radar systems are watching the spacecraft, the best prediction you can get is an error of about 20 minutes in where it will land on the Earth's surface. But at the speed that these things are moving, that 20 minutes translates to almost 10,000 kilometers. Yes. So, you know, that's, that's a fairly big uncertainty uh, region. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the, the, the yes, the, so the, the odds are, as I said, that uh, that it will land safely, and we basically will only know about it uh, from uh, the radar measurements. One final thing to say about this is that it is just possible, because the Chinese Space Agency have not really commented on this. It's just possible that they've got just a little bit of fuel left, and that they might be able to use that really in the very final stages of re-entry. Um, to give it a bit of a boost that might take it, you know, away from a land surface if that was the way it was looking. Mm. But that's pure conjecture. We we simply don't know whether yeah. that's the case or not. And they do tend to keep their cards close to their chest in that's China correct. when it comes to these kinds of things. I yeah. assume it's abandoned. I assume they've they've not had any, anyone on there for a yeah. while. That's right. There have only been uh, two uh, crewed missions to Tiangong One, um, which, and I think the last one was in about twenty. Uh, well, it was 2014, 2015, I think, uh, the last crew that was there. It might be a bit earlier than that, actually. Uh, so, so it's not. It was very much an experimental space station, very much a first step for the Chinese, but a successful one in general. You know, the um, the, the ending here is perhaps not reflective of the success of the mission uh, as it took place. Yes, indeed. Uh, and it's about the size of a bus, isn't it, this thing? Yes, it's right. Eight, eight and a half tonnes, as I said. It's uh, the, the, the odds are that... Um, you know, some of its heavier or more solid components will actually make it to the ground. Most of it will just burn up as as this thing hurtles into the atmosphere at nearly eight kilometres per second. Uh, it's it, the friction with the air, as, as you know, because we've seen uh, footage of this kind of thing before. The friction of the air very quickly melts it and uh, uh, the, the bits that can burn will burn. Uh, the The parts that do land tend to be sort of, you know, almost burnt to a crisp. And in that sense, uh, it's a very good thing. We know this from, you know, experiments, sorry, experiences of pe previous landings of space debris on the ground. Uh, the, the, the fuels and the, you know, the, the various um, volatile compounds are long gone there. So there's no... Set, uh, no risk of any kind of toxic fuel um, uh, pollution or anything of that kind by these bits coming down. It's basically just the solid bits of metal that, that land mm. uh, on the surface. Well, hopefully in the water, and it sounds like given the proximity, that's most likely and yeah. people may not see anything, but, you know, you never know. And there's a lot of cameras out there these days, so there are, that's somebody right. might spot something and we'll get to see this, but, uh, yes, we can yep. expect it to happen on or around April the 1st. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, 
ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons, and there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked and a couple of years down the track honestly can't complain their interface is very easy to use their their service is second to none uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do and they were brilliant so you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all it's all about privacy uh, do you really want big tech companies governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity. Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Now, Fred, something of a curiosity, and I mean that literally. We're talking about the Curiosity rover, which has just clocked its 2,000th Martian day or sol uh, on the planet, and uh, it's, it's gone way beyond expectations. We've talked about Curiosity a few times, but this, this um, rover is just amazing. Uh, it, indeed, that's right. It's a, a great success story. Uh, six years uh, almost of, uh, uh, of successful exploration of the red planet. Um, just to uh, clarify for um, our podcast listeners, uh, one soul, a Martian day, is about 24 hours, 40 minutes. Mm. It's slightly longer than our day. And I think, you know, that's one of the rather remarkable uh, coincidences. It's a curious thing that Mars has a, such a similar rotation period to our own, uh, as well as having uh, the tilt of its axis very similar to ours. It's about 25 degrees. And of course, it's got more or less the same land area that we have on Earth, uh, uh, being, there being no oceans on Mars, even though it's, uh, it's half the size of the Earth. That's where all the similarities stop. Uh, Andrew, <laughs> but um, I always think they're quite re remarkable things to note. It's so almost like less. somebody designed it as a test case and went, okay, I think we can do this now and we'll yeah. build a bigger one and we'll Maybe put it over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, um, 
All things are possible in this game, <laughs> I can tell you. Uh, anyway, notwithstanding that, uh, so it is, it's, uh, it's a, a lengthy period on the surface of Mars. And Curiosity, as you've mentioned, has basically performed more or less flawlessly. There's been a few minor hiccups, but generally speaking, it is in very, very good shape. And still... Um, doing its mission. And the mission, of course, is to explore a place called Gale Crater on Mars. Gale Crater is a largish crater with, at its center, a mountain something like five kilometers high. Uh, it's called Mount Sharp, uh, named after a person rather than the fact that it's pointy on the top. Uh, it's not that pointy. Um, from the distance, it just looks like a hill, um, almost like um, you know some of the um, shield volcanoes that we see, the Mauna Kea's of this world and things of that sort. Mm. So it's a, but it is a, a significant mountain. And the reason why Gale Crater was chosen for the um, uh, for the mission was that Mount Sharp has a lot of exposed strata. So, you know, the whole history of Mars in many ways is laid out in the stratigraphy of this mountain. And so uh, the idea was that, uh, sure enough, that um, Curiosity would plod its way up Mount Sharp, see how far it got, checking on the history of Mars as it went. In fact, what's happened is that it has found so many different really interesting terrains within the Gale Crater itself, that it's not really got very far in its ascent up, uh, up Mount Sharp. It is uh, at the moment at a place known as Vera Rubin Ridge. It is certainly in the foothills of Mount Sharp. Um, and we have a lovely picture uh, among many others that have come back in, in celebration or that have been issued in celebration of the 200, uh, sorry, 2000th uh, Sol anniversary of Curiosity. We have a lovely picture of the view back from Vera Rubin Ridge um, looking towards the rim of the crater itself, uh, the, the, the highest point of the rim. Uh, and we can see from that view that uh, the, uh, the rover has traversed many, many different kinds of, of landscapes, ranging from sand dunes, uh, they're called the Namib dunes, um, because of, you know, the, uh, a, a kind of uh, a kickback to uh, Namibia. Um, and uh, they, uh, Namibia, where we have the Namib de desert here on Earth. Uh, and the, uh, the, the the other really interesting things that have come up are, are riverbeds oh, with yes. pebbles in them. I mean, uh, gravel. I beds. mean, it's basically gravel that's been yeah, formed gravel, by that's flowing right. water. Uh, that, that astounds me. To find something like that on Mars really just uh, opens up a whole array of possibilities. Indeed. The, and, and, you know, mud flats and things of that sort, all the things that speak of a, a wet past. And, of course, that was Curiosity's main mission. Um, its, its mission was to identify whether Mars has ever been habitable. And within about, you know, the first two months, it had put a, you know, a wholeheartedly or an emphatic tick on that uh, on that question that, yes, Mars was habitable. We see signs of uh, the, 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 you know, the, the right chemicals There's nitrogen locked up in some of these ancient mudflats and things of that sort that um, tell us that Mars was once a place that could have harbored life. We still don't know whether it did. Uh, we don't know whether it still does. But that is um, really a, a feature for, for the next mission. There are a couple of missions um, which are designed to explore whether there are still metabolic processes uh, taking place on Mars and indeed whether there was ever any, uh, you know, any uh, 
for example, fossilized microbial life or things like that. Mm. Those are for future missions. But Curiosity, um, as it continues to explore Mars, is certainly showing that it was once a habitable place. And if they do, in these next missions, find fossil evidence of life that may have existed or even, shock horror, um, life still existing on Mars, it would be extraordinary to have something so close to us that uh, is hosting life. And then, of course, you've got to do the comparison to see if it's exclusive to their planet versus ours or if there's a relationship, which means life moves around. Uh, it, it will be outstanding if anything ever comes up like that. It will also fuel the probability that life is abundant in the universe. Yeah. So. That's right. Uh, yeah, you're, you're correct on all those issues, Andrew. But, um, uh, especially, you know, you're quite right. If we if we do find living organisms on Mars and can demonstrate that they have a different genetic origin from living organisms on the Earth, then the the conclusion is, as you've said, that life is probably abundant throughout the universe, at least at the, you know, at the single-celled organism level. There's mm. bigger questions about... Uh, vertebrates and you know higher higher species in the evolutionary chain uh, because um, certainly some voices in the astrobiology world are telling us that the step from a single-celled organism to a multi-celled organism is actually a very big one um, and may be much much rarer than the microbes themselves forming but you know keeping these things in perspective at the moment we know of life nowhere else other than the earth and I think Mars is a fantastic place to look um, and you know we uh, we await the results of future missions with great interest. I just hope you and I last long enough that we'll see them and be able to report them on Space Nuts. I hope so too. Actually, just to finish, uh, one of my favourite photos from um, Curiosity is one of, uh, it's almost a black and white shot of uh, the horizon. And in the distance, in the dusk of the uh, photo in the distance is a little dot that we call Earth. I think that's that's fabulous. Fabulous Isn't it photo. just yeah? It's mm. a lovely, a lovely twilight picture, as you said. And and um, Earth from Mars, the Earth is a bit like Venus and Mercury are from the Earth. They are, the 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 Earth never strays far from the sun in the sky. So you're always going to see it as a morning star or an evening star, just as we do with Venus and Mercury now. Except on, the color of the sky reverses on Mars, doesn't it? It's, yeah, it's a bit peculiar. That's yeah. right. Very yeah. strange. Yeah, they have blue in the morning and red at night, uh, red during the day. And that's correct. Mm. That's right. I'd love to go there. I really would. <laughs> anyway, uh, well done uh, to everybody involved in Curiosity. It's outstanding. 2,000 souls uh, on Mars. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Lastly, Fred, uh, we're going to look at a little bit of uh, astronomy history here in the form of the Yerkes Observatory. Now, this thing's been around for a long time. Uh, you, you probably couldn't blame anybody for not recognising the name. I don't think I've come across it before. But it's over in the United States in Wisconsin. Uh, but it's a bit of a sad story because um, they're shutting it down. It's going to cease operations on the 1st of October. That's correct. Actually, um, I think it is slightly less pessimistic than that in that the uh, the university uh, that operates the Yerkes Observatory, University of Chicago, um, they are very much hoping that uh, the the telescope will continue to be used, but 
perhaps under private sponsorship or tourism sponsorship or something like that, which is why they've made the announcement early that they are planning to withdraw their support for the Yerkes telescope. Um, it, it is actually a, a completely iconic piece of astronomy history. Uh, and certainly for you know, youthful astronomy buffs like I was <laughs> once about 100 years ago, actually not quite that long ago, <laughs> but the, the name Yerkes was very high up on the, on the profile. And the reason for that is that uh, the, the biggest telescope, or the large telescope there, and certainly what was certainly, um, what was certainly the, um, the most important telescope in its early years, uh, that telescope built in, I think, 1897, if I remember rightly, that's when it was completed. It is the biggest refracting telescope in the world. And by a refracting telescope, we mean one a bit like an ordinary spyglass with a lens at one end and, and an eyepiece at the other. Although, of course, these days the eyepiece has been replaced by electronic cameras and things of that sort. Yeah. But the thing is, the lens of the Yerkes refracting telescope is the, it's not the biggest ever made, but it's certainly the biggest still in operation. Uh, it is 40 inches or basically one meter in diameter. And that represents round about the largest size, almost the largest size that you can make a lens telescope because glass is not perfectly rigid. And because you're supporting this big lens only around its edge, unlike a mirror, which you can support from the back, uh, you're supporting the lens around its edge, so it tends to sag. So if you make one much bigger than, than a meter or so, it's then you're running useless. Into, then you're, useless. You're running into problems. That's right, you run into distortion problems. Um, there, the, 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 there were a couple of bigger ones uh, that were made, but um, never properly entered service. One was used for an exhibition in Paris at the turn of the 20th century, uh, and the other never never left the, the manufacturer's, off, uh, manufacturer's um, workshops. Uh, but they were slightly bigger than the 14-inch. The 14-inch, certainly the biggest uh, operational uh, refracting telescope. And because of that, it did extraordinary work during the first yeah, 30 or 40 years of the 20th century. Um, most especially in measuring the distances to stars, because that's something that you need this kind of telescope for. Um, we do it by a means called parallax, which means that you look at the star, uh, you measure its position very accurately uh, on two occasions separated by six months. And in that time, the, the, the Earth has gone halfway around the sun. And so its vantage point has changed slightly. And you can pick up that vantage point as what we call parallax, or that vantage point change as what we call parallax, and measure the distance by triangulation. It's uh, the time-honored way of measuring the distances to stars. And the Yerkes telescope was very good at it. But um, of course, uh, Really, only you know, not very long after the Yerkes telescope was was built, the the die was cast against large refracting telescopes because it was at that time that the that the big reflecting or mirror telescopes started to come into play. Um, and the, the 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 major milestone with that was in 1918 when the 100 inch or 2.4 meter. A 2.5 meter telescope at Mount Wilson was built. And that uh, is the telescope with which we discovered that the universe is full of galaxies, that it's expanding and all the rest of it. So that was very much the future. And of course, all major telescopes today are reflecting or mirror telescopes. There, there aren't really any big refracting telescopes being built. Um, that's the backstory. Uh, the front story is that really for, I think, at least 20 years, uh, the Yerkes refractor 
has been built, has been used mostly for uh, education, for university and school groups, for outreach to get the public involved with science, things of that sort. Um, but those operations have been uh, sponsored by the University of Chicago, which owns the telescope. What they now want to do is cease their funding of its operations, and I understand that that's all about the, um, the you know, the, the, the restrict limited amounts of funding that science has available. We're going through something very similar to that here in Australia at the moment. Um, so the idea is that uh, if you um, advertise the fact that you're pulling the funding early enough, then it may well be that you can get, um, you know, perhaps big business, perhaps the the private sector in terms of education to uh, really to take on the telescope as a going concern. Um, and one of the, uh, the spokespeople for the University of Chicago on this issue has said that uh, it, it would be a lost opportunity not to find uh, some agency that would take it over as an educational uh, facility. Uh, it, but they say they understand it's an expensive facility to maintain and run, and that's why they've made the announcement early uh, in order to try and gain interest or garner interest in the wider community. Uh, they say uh, in their statement, we hope that it will continue as a valuable resource to the community and visitors to the Lake Geneva area. And I can only endorse that. It would be terrible if the Yerkes telescope was dismantled or stored away in boxes or just allowed to rot. It uh, really is a very important piece of astronomical infrastructure, and it will be great to see it continuing in some capacity. Oh, yes, and I do hope so. Uh, and, and it is a classic observatory. I mean, it is just, you look at it and you go, yeah, I know what that is. Uh, it's yeah, got the dome, right. <laughs> it's got the slit door, it's, yeah. and it's built on a beautiful, beautiful 1890s um, uh, facade, a, a beautiful brick building. Uh, it, is, it is a remarkable piece of architecture, really, when you look at it. Amazing. Yeah, and amazing technology inside. To the it, it it would be staggering to see the, uh, you know, to see the Yerkes telescope up close. Uh, I haven't seen it. Um, I have seen uh, the slightly smaller version that's at Lick Observatory on Mount Hamilton, the thir the thirty six inch, uh, but the forty inch uh, would be really quite a monster to stand underneath. Oh, yeah, I reckon. Uh, and and uh, would it have suffered in more recent times from light pollution issues? Yes, um, all these uh, you know all these observatory sites uh, suffer from the, the, the ones that were were being built in the 19th century, uh, they suffer from light pollution because they were all built near cities. They were built near where the astronomers are. Mm. Um, it's only really since the advent of wide-bodied jets in the 1960s that we've been able to build telescopes where the conditions are perfect, effectively, uh, and ferry the astronomers backwards and forwards to use them. Yeah. All right. Well, let's hope uh, someone philanthropic comes forward or uh, an organisation comes forward and says, yeah, we'll have that, we'll look after that. Yeah, no, I, I can't hope so. let that one slip through the cracks. Exactly. But, um, yeah, what a remarkable piece of uh, of architecture it is. Um, certainly worth restoring, even if it can't continue as an as an observatory. Uh, that wraps us up, Fred. Thank you so much. Now we, we've got a bit of a backlog of questions, which I hope we'll be able to get to soon. Um, we we uh, we certainly do appreciate your feedback, so uh, we'll have a look at those and see if we can get some answers sorted. Uh, the truth is, we've read them and gone, oh, that's too hard. 
<laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> I will. <laughs> uh, thank you as always, Fred. Uh, it's a great pleasure, Andrew. Good to talk. We'll speak next week. And yeah, we'll look at some questions too. Indeed. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And from me, keep the cards and letters and uh, e-notes coming in. We do enjoy uh, getting your feedback and we will catch you again next time on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.